you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. The discussions we had about President Ronald Reagan's terms were some of the longest in the history of this podcast. So we thought it would be helpful for you to get a little glimpse into what we call the isms of Ronald Reagan. The talk fact features DB Comedy's Americanists, Dr. Chelsea Denote, and James McRae. This special episode also features the regulars of DB Comedy. Well, I'm Paul. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. I'm Joe. Tommy. And I'm Patrick. Enjoy this bonus episode. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. Pop culturisms of the Reagan era. Because we've talked about pop culture and presidents, man, Reagan could not have been the biggest butt of jokes in culture in the broader culture. You could, I mean, good lord! Like every stand-up mocked him. Every sketch comedy that was out there mocked him. So did that backfire by gaining sympathy for him? Also, Reagan came from Hollywood, so he did have certain Hollywood stars that he was still buddy buddy with. And because all those that didn't have to worry about AIDS, but yeah, those you know. And because but because the culture was picking up. I mean, look at the list of movies that were released in 1984. Uh, You know, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. you know, E.T. before that, the Star Wars, right? Like, so we were returning to the era of blockbusters, of escapism, and the celebration of unfettered capitalism in shows like Dallas and Dynasty. So and everybody was getting this thing called cable TV of MTV, bright colors, neon, fat. Sylvia, I always trust your instincts on popular culture. Dynasty, a cause or a symptom of Reaganism? Um, I think it was more um, a natural step after Dallas, because (laughs) Dallas was really, really popular. And if television and movies do nothing, they're going to jump on the popular train and try to make one of their own. Yeah, even NBC had their own. Oh, look, aren't the wealthy just wonderful to look at? 
symptom of the popular the zeitgeist that the greed is good wall street because right at that time there was this young real estate developer from new york city that was running around with every woman he could get on his arm every party well, you he also could have Lorena, um Helms we're talking durst yeah. <laughs> i mean you had lorena helmsley who basically uh -huh. said we don't pay taxes little people pay taxes yep and she was and she was a certain part of the culture mocked her, but another part of the culture lifted her up. Yeah. I mean, you always will have that part of the culture that is aspirational toward wealth. Mm -hmm. Why was it our national religion in the 1980s, though? Because of Reagan or was he just another? In part because the 70s stress? were the, the, the late 70s and early 80s were a genuinely rough economic time. And I think people finally felt like they had a couple bucks in their pocket. I was thinking, because this has always dawned me, there's a huge attitudinal shift. And I think that it is best like demonstrated by, he's the perfect thermometer, Sylvester Stallone movies. And let me clarify, the original Rambo, First Blood, is a gritty drama about a Vietnam vet who has lost his last platoon member who spends the entire movie not killing anyone and crying over what he's seen. The second Rambo movie, made in the 80s, He's in prison and he asks to go back to Vietnam so that they can, quote, win this time. Like, it's insane. Same with Rocky. The first one, sort of a kitchen sink drama about, I'm going to go ahead and say a mentally challenged man who fights his universe's version of Cassius Clay and loses. The second version, I'm sorry, the second uh, Rocky movie, he's literally taught by Cassius Clay to punch communism to death. Well, that's number three. That's, that's three. Number. Oh, that's the third. No, that's four. Three, three is Clever Lang. That's right. Yes. Three is Mr. T. Yeah. Three is Mr. T. Four three is Mr. Just feel like T. My point stands. And, and uh, his trainer dies. Four yeah. is when he fights Ivan Ivan Drago, and C Apollo Creed is killed. Yes, early on. Apollo but what Creed was two killed. then? Two was uh, the finish of the story where he actually beats Creed to become the champion. So, because you can also tell by Sylvester Stallone's body, kind of doughy to greased, roided, yeah, rocking. It's it's a move from like bitter self reflection to the ultimate white male fantasy. And if you want to talk theme songs, I don't know about Rocky too, but we're going from that fun, inspirational everyone. We're gonna fly now to Eye of the Tiger. And all the way through, and James Brown did not write this Living song. in America. So blame it on him. Living in America. In America. And one of the things we talked about when you were left was the fact that the mid to late 80s was this, because as a youth in that era, a lot of our activism was not built on grassroots political movement, but things like Amnesty International, Conspiracy of Hope, USA for Africa, Hands Across America, Americans United Against Apartheid, Farm Aid, forgot about Farm Aid, like all these grand um, pop culture connected movements that did do some good, don't get me wrong, but weren't you know, contributed to the fact that we are in an era of of historically low presidential election electoral turnout. And it's it's I, I think it's it's 
one of the things that made Reagan successful is his kind of queuing in on this to try to give Americans a sense of restored national purpose. Although I, the kind of interesting thing is then he never really articulates what that is. Morning um, in America, dude. Right. And so <laughs> it, it's like, and to some extent, to the extent that he is articulating it, I think it's that America's national purpose is to be a place where you can make money. Uh, you know, I think he, he he tried to say it a little bit more eloquently, like shining city on a hill, bastion of freedom, last best hope or whatever. But really what he means is America's a place where you can come and make money and no one's going to be have, a you know, give you a hard time about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so and I think that's kind of a, a, a different idea than other presidents. You know, you think about like, OK, FDR and our sense of national purpose about overcoming the depression or a sense of national purpose about winning World War II or even with um you know JFK and this kind of pyramid uh, period of, of optimism in the early 60s about a national purpose of you know advancing science and technology or or Lyndon Johnson about finally excising our demons of poverty and racism these Great were society. kind of national purposes that were top like laid out top down and exemplified by the president's policies and then they didn't work out and then vietnam happened and then so by the late 1970s it's kind of like everyone's just like mm, what are we even doing here and it's a malaise it's right and so then that's that's the malaise and i think that's where all this like well let's look at what all the wealthy and successful people are doing maybe they've got some answers for us Ooh. Uh, James, I'm so happy that you brought this up and maybe I I am off the mark completely because I just came back. Um, but one of the other big crazes of the 80s that I don't know if we've covered yet is self-help books and self-improvement. <laughs> yeah. My, um, my financial self-help Everybody yeah, my, can get a piece of the pie. My best friend in grad school, this is what she wrote her dissertation about was self-help books, especially those having to do with weight loss. Like, and I think this also oh, helps amazing. to explain the the rise in Christian fundamentalism in the 1980s yes. and, and people saying, well, I don't got the answers. Maybe God's got the answers. You know, maybe uh, Jerry Falwell has the answers. God, no, he doesn't. So the, the malaise then translates into the 80s for a search for where is our kind of optimism going to, to come from? And I think what's interesting is that we kind of stumble back into it in the 1990s when we kind of accidentally win the Cold War. And then we're like, oh, our national purpose is to make society better, to increase freedom, to establish democracy throughout the world. And then September 11th happens and we're like, fuck, that doesn't work either. <laughs> and then for the last 20 years, we've been, again, we kind of stumbled back into it with Obama and Obama gave us an idea of what the national purpose was, but I think then the fact that it didn't take in the whole country and that Obama becomes a divisive figure rather than a unifying one, and then... Shocking! Who would have thought that and, half of the country didn't like a smart black man? Yep. And so I think... It's certainly too. not racist. Then, that's, that's, then we're here in 2023, post-COVID, but not really post-COVID, Yep. And it's, again, like, there's not necessarily an existential crisis right now, but no one really feels like they know what the national purpose is. And so I think then we're back to, everybody's just going to watch TikTok and make money. Volunteerisms. 
of the Reagan era. One of the things about the 80s, too, for those of us that were that young and wanted to do something politically active, maybe it's embarrassing to admit, it was all tied to pop culture. I became involved in Amnesty International because of the Conspiracy of Hope tour. I will admit it. You have, well, but you have, you have We Are the World and USA for Africa and uh, Americans United with Against people, Apartheid. Hands Across and, America. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, hands Across America. All this. And the, I, you know, we were wondering how come Reagan won? Well, one of the reasons was I think there were some people that didn't want to get involved politically. It is an era of low, some of the lowest turnouts in presidential campaigns in American history, because, hey, Sting says we can write <laughs> people, write to prisoners in, in Chile. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because I did it and Paul did it, but that's somehow better than knocking on doors and trying to register voters, which the right was doing much more than the left was in the 80s. And, and I guess part of the reason was there was this sense that we would somehow have more impact on a family in Chile than we would a family on the South Side. Mm -hmm. I'm really going to push back on that because I went and I did Hands Across America, which is actually Hands Across Woodlawn. And <laughs> couldn't make it across America. <laughs> no, we made it across a microcosm of America, but not the real one. But I also remember that time as a um, for better or for worse, is a period of volunteerism, and this perhaps reflected, uh, you know, you know Reagan's theory that the private sector and private charity and volunteerism were actually the keys to yep. making America great again. To borrow a modern logo, so I remember a lot of people volunteering for a lot of tutoring programs. There was a hunger cleanup thing in 1987 where I went and mopped a hallway at misericordia home for the disabled and then everyone felt really really good about themselves afterwards and we had a concert and a barbecue so it's not just you know we could do more for people in chile it's just that it's that if we join churches and we do this volunteer and we and we spoon out soup at a homeless shelter we are doing so much for our lessers and our inferiors and we do not have to change the structure the economic structure or econ or bring economic opportunity to these people. Well, and it's also a distraction, right? From like, why, what is the root cause of the inequalities in America? It's certainly not the government. Don't look over here at the man behind the curtain. Oh, we won't find that out for another 20 years. Right? <laughs> and but so the this like this volunteerism and it right it continues today it's not just a a um part of the the 80s cultural moment um right the yeah I feel like the volunteerism of the 70s had to do with politics had to do with changing society and the volunteerism of the 80s was a form of pity but also, yeah, I, I would also argue a reflection on that's the last literal era of um, the bomb. The, you know, the, the, the fear of thermonuclear war, which, you know, from what 99 Luft balloons. survive it based on what Reagan was saying. Well, but I mean. I mean, 
human anatomy and physics aside, we could have survived. <laughs> well, we think we're going to survive because Lord knows we can't stop it if it happens, right? Yeah. Like, so how do you deal with the helplessness? Well, you know, I'm going to throw on some U2 and <laughs> sell yeah. a couple T-shirts and maybe that'll do it. Rather than let's do some work in our own backyard. Um, there's a weird helplessness about a problem that seems so big that you can't wrestle it. And that's never been a problem again, nor will it ever be, will it? Um, but, and it's also, again, just sort of Reagan had such a dominant re-election in 1984. And as you said, there was very low voter turnout. With low voter turnout, but yeah. So there was this sort of throw your hands up in the air and go, well, what are you going to do? urbanisms of the reagan era it might be relevant here to just point out the the influence of the reagan presidency in the rejection by white america of urban spaces and that this was i think that the reagan presidency is really kind of a a turning point now not that not that the reagan administration invented white flight which certainly had been going on for you know, 20 to 30 years before that, but really you start to see kind of the crystallization of the idea culturally, I think, in affluent America, the urban spaces are scary and not a place where they are welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think you're right, James, in that like we see in the 70s, we see, I think, an increasing fear of cities as they go through like this period of really awful economic decline but i think you're right that in the 80s we see a very obvious demonization of urban space Mm -hmm. isn't the corollary to that that since the 80s was like dominated by real estate moguls thank you for giving us donald trump but the 80s was also the maybe i wouldn't call it the renaissance of urban spaces but it was the beginnings of gentrification Mm -hmm. Those were the years of neighborhoods, right? I mean, gentrification is something that uh, is is local, right? It depends on like where you Mm -hmm. are. I think that in in New York City, you know, to some extent, we're seeing that perhaps in parts of Chicago. Oh, oh, lots of places in Chicago, and oh yeah, oh my Um, god, right? But like, but not the whole place, right? Like, there are definitely on the north, on the white side, gentrification in the 1980s, right? Um. I would say gentrification was more of a force in the 90s where you start seeing that uh, because there were still some spaces uh, in white areas where you could, I mean, you could kick out the hippies and the arts before you and still have real estate. Well, perhaps as a transition to you just. Well, also because that's in the 90s, you start to get the empty nest syndrome where. Hey, the 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 city used to be cool. Let's move back now that the kids are in a different part of the city. <laughs> we don't know. What have- I would say though is, you know, as a perhaps you transition into another aspect of the Reagan years, um, it would always kind of follow that the pattern of gentrification as it was established in the 1980s, and yes, it became epidemic, pandemic in the 1980s. But the I, gays I, moved in, and then the Bohemians moved in, and once they had improved the properties just enough in places like Lincoln Park and Newtown, then the yuppies moved in. Yeah, I think I think 
Paul, I think both Paul and James are right, right in this like uh, Venn James diagram. Was high five, Zoom. <laughs> in this like gentrification Venn diagram, like both of you are right. Um, you're like the little tiny sliver because I, you get <laughs> in the in the 1980s is when you really it starts in the 70s, like late 70s, but in the 80s you really start to see the turnaround of like the Times Square area in New York City. Um, and that, I think the success of that effort, right, which is, is less cultural gentrification, right, natural inflow of relatively wealthy bohemian, right, all of these kind of the, the, words the, that we would use to describe gentrifiers now. Well, hence and, the name yuppie. That's right. the young urban professional. That's literally where it comes from. Um, and but the gentrification of Times Square was very largely um, uh, real estate guys, but also city government. Um, and so the success of New York City gentrification in Times Square, I think, just at that point, opens up uh, the um, like the transition to yuppieism. Well, and I, I think that uh, to, I, I think that the two things can be true because I think part of what the attitude becomes is less about let's help what's here yep. and more about let's bring in the new, right? Yep. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Right. And so then that that becomes, I think, a, a you know, we've been talking about kind of urban disinvestment, right? And so it becomes easier, I think, to justify urban disinvestment. When you basically say, well, you know what, private people will come in and renovate this and, and we don't need to support the existing population because really we're just hoping to chase them out with higher property values anyways. Yeah, yeah I think Cle great. Yeah, Cleveland did not have that kind of development. Pittsburgh did. Boston Some, did, right? Boston like Boston is did. Oh, really yeah. obvious, in the especially in the 80s. Uh -huh. Really well, fast. DB Comedy welcomes anyone that would like to advertise on DB Comedy Podcasts. Reach out to us at dbcomedychicago at gmail.com or on our Facebook page, DB Comedy. Rates are very reasonable, and we welcome your patronage. Timely Comedies. We are not having my grandfather's funeral in Animal Crossing. Historical dramas. Good evening, Mr. Wells. I'm sorry, do I know you? I'm Orson Wells. Ah, I should have known your voice. I'm here to, as we say in America, bury the hatchet. A medieval epic. A calf, springing over the grass, bounded up to us. The pen of God will be written on your skin. And you will live forever. Continuous Dream Theater is a podcast of audio dramas and comedies by Chicago playwright and author Amy Kreider. Just visit www.continuousdream.com and click on an episode title to enjoy a range of award-winning entertainment. That's www.continuousdream.com. Com. Continuous Stream is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast player. Thank you.
drugisms of the Reagan era. Hey, can I uh, put this out? And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to, uh, you know, Paul, I'm going to make an, an unfounded and unpopular statement. Yes. Uh, we're, we're entering, we're entering the uh, era of crack, of crack cocaine. Oh, yes, I say we are. Yeah, we are. Crack dealers are the ultimate Reagan economic success stories. They find a product, they sell it locally, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they take out competition to form a monopoly Except- in their neighborhoods. With, they weren't with, making as much money. That was more of a fallacy that they were, you know, you, you were rolling in. But also, it's true. But also, Tommy, to your point, kneecapping black communities. Yes. Yeah, also, though, let me, just like the Reagan administration. I think, I think Paul's like, going to say something I was going to say. You say. say. Yep. Oh, thank you. Tommy, you're forgetting the role of the government in supporting I was going to say. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. the CIA Reagan, that introduced crack. You damn which means right. the federal government bailed out crack dealers. And so the, we and should the, do it for bankers. And the reporter that it'll work now. And the reporter that revealed it was so essentially sort of tortured and shunned that he eventually committed suicide. So this so has been well story. documented because I've always heard that as unsubstantiated rumor that you know the government had his hand in crack. That's pretty yeah. substantiated. I mean, seems pretty true. Yeah, substantiated enough that FX has done a series about it. Oh, okay. And it's not like the government is any kind of piker at giving dangerous drugs to people. Remember MK Ultra? Yeah. LSD. LSD. True. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we it's funny. They see always what run. the effects of that were. Could we use that ourselves? Well, they're finding ways to do it now. Strangely enough, LSD and ayahuasca. But, uh, but I mean, so uh, so discussions that have been had about first ladies and what they do being first lady i think the one thing we all people associate nancy with is the don't say no campaign which was the just just say no campaign joe not the don't say no campaign just say (laughs) don't say no no campaign don't say no i think that was the 70s (laughs) <laughs> no 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 was not in the vernacular in the 70s as i understand don't say no just say I, no just say no <laughs> now I, zoomer, I don't say no in my for our zoomer listener uh, <laughs> just say no is of course the weirdly multimedia campaign of don't do drugs with a emphasis on of course this being the 80s on the crack cocaine yeah. Well, and it has, you know, the whole like war on drugs, of course, has a really racist over and undertones. And so it really interesting to me that this is I think it's a very appropriate that the White House deems this is going to be Nancy's signature program. Is it something Nancy and the Reagan White House come up with or did she just sort of put her flag on something the the DEA had been doing. I know the war on drugs is a larger priority for the White House. I don't know that they were like, oh, like the first lady needs something to do. Like, let's get her on the war on drugs bandwagon. I could see them, the the White House saying the first lady needs something to do, given (laughs) what we've heard about Nancy's involvement with Ronnie's politics and the things going on in the White House. The Just Say No campaign emerged 
from a substance abuse prevention program supported by the National Institutes of Health, pioneered in the 1970s by the University of Houston social psychology professor Richard I. Evans. His idea was a social inoculation model, which is not a good model. It works against drunk driving. It's a it's a terrifying turn of phrase. I mean, we know what the the model was. If 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 everyone says drugs are bad, then people will think drugs are bad. Nancy Reagan first became involved during a campaign trip in 1980 to Daytop Village, New York City. She recalled feeling impressed by a need to educate youth about drugs and drug abuse. Upon her husband's election to the presidency, she returned to Daytop Village and outlined how she wished to help educate the youth. So it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure that there probably was some political consultation saying like, oh, this would be a good thing for for Nancy to kind of lead the way on. But it it sounds like there there was at least some of her own motivation there to say this is something that I feel I want to do. Well, it was clear that from what I'm looking at, it looks like it was primarily a advertising campaign. Not surprising. I love this, though. She enlisted everybody from the Girl Scouts of America okay. to Clint Eastwood <laughs> yep. to LaToya Jackson. Great. I mean, I think all the Jacksons. I, I, I definitely No, LaToya remember, was the only one that wasn't busy at the time. I remember seeing like a, uh, a Michael Jackson. had time. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing a Michael Jackson ad that was a very bad ripoff of uh, the, the bad music video. They're bad. They're bad. Yeah, something like that. Okay, they make your hair spontaneously combust. And I do. And your skin white. And I do feel like if that's a message that Nancy Reagan already feels strongly about, I don't know if that's true or if that's just something she said in an autobiography later on. It was pretty universally not taken seriously. <laughs> let's put it that way. It was kind of. <laughs> The butt of all kinds of jokes and ridiculousness. and Because I, I think was... Nancy Reagan is the perfect purveyor of this message, right? Because it fits within that, like, traditional female value of, like, mothering and protecting children. And, right, like, <laughs> this... I'm just laughing because Nancy Reagan being described that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I, not anyone I would want to be my mother. The goals of Don't Say No and how it done it it falls within that traditional family values persona that nancy reagan is all about portraying to the world even if it's not how she operates day to day even if her children have her face on dark boards ah. they weren't going to put nancy reagan in charge of deregulation right i mean that <laughs> wouldn't that, that wouldn't have fit within the the model that chelsea's describing here i'm I, trying I, to think what the yeah. The catchy advertising slogan for that would be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just say no. Or don't say no. Don't yeah. say no. Just say no. How about that, that would be the don't say no campaign? I, I think when you really earn it, it's the just don't say no campaign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, D Ray. No, no. She did have a, an episode of Different Strokes where she talked to Arnold and Willis about. Oh, no. The uh, errors of drug use. Now, was that the birth of the special episodes that a lot of sitcoms in the 80s had? I think very special episodes. Sorry. I think that goes down a little bit like into the 80s, into into the the late 70s. 
isn't there like um isn't there a special episode of definitely of the Brady Bunch and definitely of Leave It to Beaver, but like later into the seventies with Leave It to Beaver, like Wally and Beaver are having dinner with their mother and Ward is dead. Yeah, cause, well, because there's there's an All in the Family episode about the dangers of people breaking into your house to sexually assault your wife. And and and, Wait, and Chelsea, Chelsea, I think you just you, you described an SCTV sketch where Eddie Haskell comes in with a smoking gun, and that's what he just. Like, I just shot Wally. Like, uh, although um, Joe, for another piece for our theoretical uh, merch store, is we need like a, <laughs> a dare shirt that says "Don't say no." It reminds me of my favorite "Just Say No" story because it's a Chicago Cubs story. Oh, you have to tell us. Okay, so this was, so everybody remembers there was this New York Met, Daryl Strawberry, who at one point got suspended for cocaine use. Cocaine, also a big 80s thing, right? So a big 80s thing, man. His first game back is at Wrigley Field, and everybody's going, oh, dear God, what are the bleacher bums going to do? Everybody was thinking they were just going to fill baggies full of flour and throw it at him. No, he comes out to warm up and the bleacher bums chant, just say no, just say no, just say. And Daryl Strawberry was absolutely like fell over laughing so hard at them. And there's my just say no story. Racisms of the Reagan era. It must be it must be said though that Donald Reagan A is a total prick and B had quite the agenda. Donald Reagan pretty much confirmed that in his fuck you book uh, <laughs> after he got fired by Nancy. <laughs> Probably. Uh, so what was the did he share any particular anecdotes in um, his book? That Reagan liked racist jokes. Oh, we all knew that. Yeah, they say that about Lincoln too. I mean, it's it's hard to prove or disprove. But Reagan was caught. I do believe, yeah. But he did actually. There was a 1980 incident that, of course, did not damage his candidacy whatsoever, where he was overheard telling racist jokes on the campaign bus, and he later said, "Oh, I was just, you know, locker room talk." Right. Exactly. It was his. It was his pussy grabbing moment. Mm-hmm. And the whole I was just joking was never a problem again. Well, they came out with the the phone transcripts that Nixon kept um, of a a phone call (laughs) when Reagan called to talk about various things and delegates coming to visit from Africa. That rings a bell. That just came out about a year or two references about people who just recently learned how to wear shoes and coming mm-hmm. out of their villages so yeah i'm gonna go with reagan's a racist <laughs> okay and i didn't he didn't like asian people either because in discussion of taiwan and china policy he said what's our policy now no tiki no laundry <sighs> yeah and so i i think that, that those anecdotes are a good encapsulation of of reagan's attitude of, regarding race I think if if you had asked Reagan, is he a racist, he would have said no. And I think he honestly would have meant that, but I think that he really didn't have any awareness of what racism actually was. Um, Same thing with John Wayne. He didn't think he was a racist either. (laughs) Right. 
And I, is, you know, were the policies of the Reagan administration harmful to people of color? Unquestionably. Uh, did Reagan engage in the passing of racial stereotypes? Unquestionably. And so it, it's it's kind of like, well, if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, then it's a duck. Doesn't matter what the duck says it is. Um, I would and, also point out, I think most garden variety racists would say that they are not racist. You have to be really hardcore to be like, oh yeah, out and proud. Right, well, and I don't even know that it's necessarily, like, like I said, I don't think, I don't think Reagan conceived of himself as being racist. But I also think that he didn't have a significant enough self-reflection or self-awareness to understand that, hey, I have attitudes that stereotype people of color. I have attitudes in which I assume things about people of different races and not understanding that that is, in fact, what I think in Reagan's mind. He's like, well, I don't automatically hate every black person I look at to him. If I pass that benchmark, then I'm not a racist. That's not what that term means. That that's where we put them. Also, but you know, at the same time, certainly there's a lot of room to criticize Reagan on race. But literally, we've said that about I think every single president we've had so far. So I don't necessarily know that Reagan is a huge outlier in terms of his own personal convictions. For example, I don't know. Like, I think if you put LBJ and and Reagan in a room. Or you put them in two side-by-side rooms and write them the same racist jokes, you get the same amount of laughter. But the difference is that LBJ signed civil rights legislation and Reagan ignored AIDS until it devastated entire communities. So, Well, one step further, Reagan played racist sentiments, what we now call the race card, but what we used to call the dog whistle. The whole thing about Philadelphia, Mississippi was... They never mentioned it. They just let everybody else make the connection. And people who knew, particularly white racists, knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. It's like, what well, you know what he was saying when he said, I would have voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Because of states' rights, yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, think yeah. his welfare comments about, you know, able-bodied uh, big bucks who refused to work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's another And of course, the welfare queen who was actually white, but he never met, he never mentioned yeah. that, strangely enough. Well, it was a, a, it was a black woman, but that was one of the many grifts that she was doing. Welfare mm-hmm. was just one of them. And he latched onto that story and made it seem like that was the typical black person on welfare as opposed to a far, far, far outlier who was conning the system. I feel like we should at least mention what I think is the incredibly shameful refusal of the Reagan administration to put any pressure at all on apartheid South Africa. Um, At a a time when really the rest of the Western world was starting to say, you know what, no, you cannot just have racial segregation in extremists. You cannot have, you know, apartheid is a reprehensible policy. Again, most of the rest of the Western world was putting sanctions on on South Africa at this point. They're really kind of clamping down on their participation in in world affairs. And heck, the South Africans tested nuclear weapons. So they're already in or, you know, they didn't I don't think they acknowledged that, but everybody knew 
that they had nukes and that they were in a, a you know disobedience of the non-proliferation treaty the fact that the, the reagan administration just says nope they're our ally against communism and so they are untouchable i think was was pretty reprehensible Plus, he also thought Mandela was a communist, and he thought uh, Mark King was a communist, too. Um, and let's face it, Frank Sinatra did want to play Sun City. <laughs> and I think he genuinely did, by the way. Like, Can the United States really like, convincingly argue against apartheid, considering we invented all of their best ideas? The United States could come at it from the perspective of, this was not a good idea for us, as we've discovered, and it shouldn't be a good idea for you either. We have discovered the error of our ways, at least to some extent, and you too must discover the error of yours. I think the United States was going with the, we're sweeping it under the carpet and pretending that it was never, that big lump there, it doesn't exist. And, and, and honestly, I think Reagan would have been in a good position to do that. I think that Reagan didn't think of himself as a racist. Who These does? were obviously racist policies. If he had said, you know, the United States has confronted its own racist issue and, and we have worked to address the errors of our own segregationist policies, and now it's time for South Africa to do the same, and until they do so, we're going to put some economic pressure on the South African government to do that, I, you know, I don't think that he would have faced much political opposition. Except as the guy who started his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, he had zero credibility to say that. Yeah, but I, like, yes, you're right. But sometimes the people who have the least credibility to do something, the fact that they do it gives them credibility, right? Like us on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I refuse any credibility. I will not silly my good name by anyone claiming I'm a credible source of anything. You were, you know, those of us, I mean, I moved to Chicago in June 84, so it was right after Harold Washington gets elected mayor, the first mayor, and instills what was still called the Council Wars, where 29 white aldermen basically said, no, we're not passing anything you want to do. And it was pure racism, pure race-based race, race -based politics. So much so that it spilled into the Democratic National Convention. One little discussed legacy of the Reagan years is how he made prejudice fashionable again, even at an integrated public high school like my alma mater, Morgan Park. When is Reagan going to arrest all the welfare queens? Unlike Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan is a Christian. Finally, a president who'll stand up for white people. Some of us fought against America's hard right turn. Nancy Reagan is helping me lose weight. Every time I see her ugly face and her skinny body, I lose my appetite. Unfortunately, some of us were me. The Falklands War is certainly a choice between Scylla and Charybdis, isn't it? Shut, Shut up, up, Molten.
Our school became a powder keg in February 1983 when... And I ask for your help with the same adventurous spirit of Gene Point Baptista Saba when he finds Chicago, we're going to do some great deeds here together. Harold Washington beat incumbent Jane Byrne in the Democratic primary, and Chicago was about to elect its first black mayor. At uh, Morgan Park, the black kids were excited, the Hispanic kids were neutral, and the white kids were terrified. A uh, black mayor will be an embarrassment to the city. He'll be wearing a fur coat, riding around in a Cadillac. So what? Jane Byrne's been doing that for years. Shut up, Moulton. Some masked their racism by claiming that Harold wasn't qualified because he'd failed to file taxes a few times. We can't have a mayor who doesn't follow the rules. Yeah, especially in a city like Chicago, where we're known for our honest, law-abiding politicians. Shut up, Moulton. Bernard Epton, the candidate of Chicago's long-dormant Republican Party, became a hero to white voters, our very own Reagan. I'm going to march down the hall yelling, Epstein! Epstein! So, did you forget that Harold's opponent is named Epton? Or are you trying to revive Welcome Back, Cotter? Shut up, Moulton. Yes, it was a divisive time. But I brought the many colors of Morgan Park High School together for a moment of unity. This is Principal Martin D. Gabriel. There will be an assembly to celebrate Black History Month on Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the auditorium. Attendance is mandatory. Some white kids boycotted the event, but still, a large, fractious crowd watched performances by the band, the a cappella choir, an African dance ensemble, and the Curtain Club, of which I was a member. Our sponsor, Miss Peggy Jackson, had us reading poems by famous black writers. I was reluctant. I'm not sure if I should do this, Miss Jackson. Principal Martin D. Gabriel is about to announce you, Paul. I know he is, but maybe you can say I got sick. I mean, people do get sick. And I will make sure you become very, very sick if you embarrass me in front of this entire school. Why are you being such a coward, Paul? Don't you support equality? I do, but I don't support people throwing things at me. Now, what if Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X thought like that? They'd probably still be alive. You're up. Break a leg. Thanks, but someone else will probably do it for me. And now, Paul Moulton will read Yet Do I Marvel by County Cullen, a poem about being a black poet in America. Once I stepped on stage, all the kids in that auditorium, black, brown, and white, were united. in laughter at the skinny little white boy about to express the pain of being black. I waited for the hysteria to die down. <laughs> Which it didn't, until Miss Jackson came to my rescue. Your attention, please. This young man is going to read you a poem, and I expect you to show him the respect that he deserves as a fellow student. Do I make myself clear? Ahem. 
I doubt not God is good, well-meaning, kind, and did he stoop to quibble, could tell why the little buried mole continues blind, why flesh that mirrors him must someday die, make plain the reason tortured Tantalus is baited by the fickle fruit, declare if merely brute caprice doomed Sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stare. Inscrutable his ways are, and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. Uh, feedback was generally positive. And I feel sorry for you, Molten. <laughs> that took guts, Molten. Did you get extra credit for that or something, Molten? Harold went on to become mayor. Bernard Epton went on to become a punchline. Chicago's city council went on to exemplify the white resentment that fueled Ronald Reagan's re-election. And Morgan Park went back to the everyday business of being a chaotic but occasionally excellent urban high school. A little over a year after that assembly, I graduated and started making my way in the world. But I was always proud to tell people where I was from, if only because I thought it would give me street cred in a decade when street cred meant absolutely nothing. So, where are you from? I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Oh my god! Are you in a gang? Um, yeah. We're called the Insane Clown Posse. That's it. The Insane Clown Posse. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.